This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and I'm Michael Moore. Thank you for joining me today. Last night, Donald Trump uh, tweeted at me. He was in the middle of one of his big Twitter storms and decided to throw me in. Um, always a pleasure. I uh, I responded. I won't take up your time with it here. You can go on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and, and check it out. I've got more important business here today because uh, I have on the show with me uh, one of my favorite people, um, somebody whom I met just three days after Trump's election. We were both on Morning Joe together. And the things that he said and what I've listened to him say since and what he's written. He had a book out this year called Winners Take All. A very powerful voice that I want you to hear. Some of you, I'm, I'm sure, know him. And if you don't, um, I want you to please get to know him and pay attention to him because he's saying some very important things about about the thing I'm most concerned about, which is not just getting rid of Trump, but getting rid of that which gave us Trump. Because if we don't do that, then we'll just get the next Trump down the road here. And that's uh, unacceptable. My guest today is Anand Gerdadas. So just so people know, I mean, you, uh, you were for many years a foreign uh, correspondent and uh, columnist for the New York Times. You currently teach uh, journalism at NYU. Is that correct? Yeah. Is certain, right? I'm not teaching this this year, but last yeah. year. And what, what, what are you doing this year? Um, you know, I published my third book uh, last year, the fall of last year, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. And my plan was to go on a, you know, three-week book tour the way you normally do and having done this twice before i sort of understood that that you know three weeks might be a little too long uh relative to the public's interest in it but you know i would do it and something happened with this book that i had never really experienced before which is that it um i got very lucky with the moment that we were in and and the kind of series of moments that we've been in since last fall different moments in which the 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 criticism of a book and the, the of the book and then the summons of the book the, the the criticism of a world in which plutocrats have taken over wealth and power and have used the idea of helping us to entrench their rule have used the idea of giving back to deepen plutocracy have used the gloss of making a difference to further their opportunities to make a killing that that i got a lot of help over the last year from these people just throwing evidence of this into all of our faces. I mean, starting mm -hmm. with the plutocratic president who literally had a fake charity, right. um, with the Sackler family being finally brought to some measure of justice for causing the opioid crisis and donating a fraction of the spoils to arts patronage so that, you know, people, journalists and regulators who live in big fancy cities would only know them for their museums and not be preoccupied with the thought that they were killing people. Um, 
you know, I think a real reckoning around Jeff Bezos and Amazon and starting to understand that as more than a story of convenience, um, a real reckoning around Mark Zuckerberg and tech and what it actually means for someone to sell out democracy itself for a few percentage points of growth lust. Um, the book, I think, exploded into the the behaviors that were all around us and now into this presidential conversation. So I've spent a lot of the last year going around and kind of talking and teaching about it. Um, my old attitude, I don't know if you've gone through this as a filmmaker, my old attitude used to be like, this is my work, people. Like, you drop the work and you go home and like, you read my work, read my work. And I've realized that we don't live in a read my work era anymore. I don't know if you think we live in a watch my movie era anymore. But we live in an era in which you got to talk to people directly. And my assumption has shifted around to, it's like, I actually, I know that most people listening to this and most people in general will not, in fact, read my book. I would love for them to read my book, but they're not going to. And I mean, I see the number of people playing Candy Crush on the airplane. Every time I get on the airplane, I just do a rough count, right? right? Like the, the, the book market is a limited market. Right. And so I, in the, in the kind of tradition of a lot of figures in American history who I admired, kind of spent much of the last year just going around and showing up in places and, you know, and, and having a conversation with people about number one, the idea that there's a big majority in this country that wants transformational reform. And you've talked about that. Some of those people are on the right, by the way, we may right. not agree on what transformational reform <laughs> right. is, but there's a majority for, we got to change the hell out of things. Number two, that as that has happened, some of the people most responsible for creating the winners take all America that has led to that anger and that hunger for reform have somehow rich splained themselves into the leadership of social change through philanthropy, through, you know, we're going to, Google's going to reinvent the future of cities on and on. Zuckerberg's going to create community and help kids on the border. The people, some of the people most responsible, and certainly the class of people most responsible for virtually everything you've spent your career chronicling, have miraculously reinvented themselves in the last many years as the solution to the problems they are still busily causing. Right. And I've tried to just have that conversation over the last year, and I've been amazed that it's a conversation that, you know, as, as I think you would resonate with, I feel people almost on, when I go to Michigan and Ohio and places like that, I feel people get this faster mm -hmm. than people get it in San Francisco and New that? York. Because this has been the stick with which they have been beaten for 30 or 40 years, right? Like the, the person shutting down the plant always told them, I mean, no one said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to screw you by shutting down this plant, right? That's never the speech. Mm -hmm. The speech is always, this is going to be great for you. We're going to expand partnerships with China. Isn't that what they go to places like Flint and say, we're going we're gonna, to you know, deepen a partner, a, you know, trans-Asian partnership with China, and it's going to be a win-win, you know, and three months later, you're on food stamps. I, I personally witnessed when they said that in Flint, this is, you know, many years ago, and I was there uh, the night that they were disassembling the assembly line at the Chevrolet plant and packing it onto train cars. It was going to the, the literal assembly line was going to be shipped to China. This is when China was just beginning to have car assembly lines and they didn't have the, the wherewithal at that point. And so, and so, and everybody was like, oh, this is actually going to be good for us. This will be good for us because this will create a new economy 
this will create a, a different kind of job. I wanted to do this backbreaking work on the assembly line. They really pitched it like that. And a lot of people did fall for it, as you said. You know, what's really interesting when you say that in so many eras, I mean, you and I both spent a lot of time writing about inequality, but inequality is an old story and there's different, takes different forms in different eras. It's a different group of people on top and maybe on the bottom in different eras. And one of the things that you find is common across history is that the people on top always, they, they never just stay on top by pointing their guns at the people on the bottom. In some eras of history, that's how they did it. But that's not a very durable or sustainable way of staying on top, building gates. You know, when you go to Brazil, that's kind of how they do it. Like the rich people all live behind eight gates. It's not a very nice way to live. Right. None of them in Brazil put their, my friend was telling me, they don't put their homes in the GPS of their car, like home location, because it's the easiest way for someone to steal the car while you're at a restaurant, figure out where your home is, know you're not there and rob your home. Like to live mm -hmm. in that anxiety is not a fun way to be a rich person. So what rich people tend to do is to invent a story that justifies why it ought to be this way. This is not some fallen condition. Mm -hmm. It This is actually the best of all worlds. And in feudal Britain, if you watch a show like Downton Abbey, there's a there's one story about that, right? There's kind of these are the natural, you know, heirs to the to to the kind of countryside and the land and the, the caregivers and the stewards and they're responsible for all of you and you just have to do your little job, but they're responsible. That was the story of that time. And by the way, most people believe that story in that time, which is what's terrifying. In most of these eras, everybody believes the story. That's what makes the story powerful. In the Indian caste system. A lot of, it wasn't just the Brahmins who believed in the caste system, right? There's a lot of people on the bottom who believed in the caste system. That's what's scary. And so I think it follows that there must be such a story in our time that most people believe, that even the people on the bottom believe. And so I spent a lot of time in this book thinking about what is that story? What's the story about the naturalness of inequality in our time that people have been forced to believe that a hundred years from now, School kids will sit around thinking, gosh, they believed that? They all believe right. that? They will and, laugh at us. And to me, watching, hearing your story, people thinking that the dismantling of their assembly lines might benefit them. The story that I found and wrote about in the book is the story of the win-win. The win-win is the great story of our time, the great fraud story of right. our time. And the story goes like this. Yes, there are people up above. And yes, there are some people down below. And yes, I might even concede, Plutocrat says, that the divide is too broad. Jamie Dimon might say that today. Other rich people might say that. But the best way to do right by the people down below is to A, have the people on top lead the search for better solutions, to have them make money, from solving those problems to profit from it. So it's a win-win. You're empowering people in a way that kicks something back to the powerful. And this is why you have social enterprise becoming the biggest club in all these business schools. And this is why you have impact investing, where suddenly Goldman Sachs is claiming that it's going to be able to make money for itself and provide a social return. This is why you got Tom's Shoes, where they claim to be giving a second pair of shoes to someone for every... Shoe they sell you. And I've traveled a lot in the developing world. Never seen those shoes been giving out, given out. But, you know, it, it, this is why you're asked to do $2 at Walgreens for this cause or that cause. And the fantasy of the win-win is that we can help the people who you spent your career investigating and, and, and chronicling. We can help the people down below 
without interfering with the people standing on their necks. We can lift the people down below up without disturbing the people standing on their necks. Now, this is fraudulent as a matter of physics as well as of sociology. Because as you know so well from your work, the people who had those factories shut down on them, that wasn't done by nature. That was done by other people. Um, the people who had the financial crisis visited on them or the people who were sent into wars where they died that we shouldn't have fought in the first place. The people down below were down below in whatever condition that may be, whether it's being defrauded or being killed, because someone else made a choice and benefited from that choice. And so I believe and have been passionately arguing that the only way to get beyond our winners take all America is to actually get those people off those necks. And that is not a win-win. I want to say it here very loudly and clearly. I am not in favor of a win-win on this issue. The only answer to this moment is to reduce the wealth and power of the people on top who have pushed for a merciless economy, for senseless wars, and for a society that is more and more polarized because of their internet platforms, that is more and more monopolistic, and that has provided fewer and fewer opportunities for regular Americans to make a decent living, start a great business, and take care of a family. Wow. You know, if we, we know, you know, I know, I think a lot of people listening to this know, that this isn't going to change unless we, we remove the boot off the neck of those who occupy the lower rungs of the ladder. The people who wear those boots aren't going to be too happy to hear what our plan is and the fact that we are actually vocal and open about what we intend to do. Um, that is not going to, and is, does not go down well with them. I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, you have, uh, That's been another part of my <clears throat> last year. Well, yeah, so you have this uh, famous uh, uh, interaction with um, uh, Jamie Dimon uh, that uh, was, well, you, you, I was at this uh, panel that you, you sort of told the behind the scenes of this. Uh, do you mind sharing that yeah. story? Uh, so, and explain who Jamie Dimon is. To- you know, so about once every week or two weeks over the last year, as I've been out and visibly talking about these things, I get a lot of lovely emails and messages all the time from regular people who say, Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for fighting for someone in my situation, which is X, Y, Z. But every week or two, I get a different kind of email or message from a person at the very, very top. These are people I don't know personally. Sometimes they've read the book. Sometimes they haven't. Some of these emails are actually very thoughtful. Some of these emails, actually people have read the book. They don't agree with 80% of it maybe, but they feel challenged enough to say, hey, I want to talk. I want to, you know, and sometimes I talk to them. Sometimes I don't. I got one of the kind of less impressive in the genre was Jamie Dimon. I don't, I don't know that Jamie, he didn't strike me after we spoke as the book reading kind, but he did read a quote that I said in uh, the New York Times when he announced, so Jamie Dimon is the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, one of the biggest banks in the world. And in addition to that, he runs, uh, is a chair of a big organization that's very important that most listeners probably don't know about called the Business Roundtable, which is a club of uh, the CEOs of 180-something of the biggest companies in America, right? So this is like the CEOs of, this is like the CEO of the CEOs. Right, and it's a real club. It's a real club. Yeah, not not hair club for men, but yes. generally 
And to the extent that they need to speak in a single voice. They do. On something. Mm -hmm. This is the organization that speaks as big corporate America. So if if Wall Street had a Vatican. Yes. This would sort of be it. Except it's not only Wall Street. It's Wall Street and the defense companies and the tech companies. So when we talk about plutocracy or big business or whatever, like this is the address. If you if you want to, you know, the Henry Kissinger question, like if I want to call big business, who do I call? You call the business roundtable and Jamie Dimon chair. So the business roundtable um, in August made what some people thought was a historic statement. The business roundtable until now for a generation has, has advocated a view that the purpose of a corporation is to make money for shareholders. And as you know so well from your work, it is that singular view. You could trace so much of the devastation that you have chronicled to that single idea. Yes. As they've told me over the years, we have a legal and fiduciary responsibility to return as much profit as legally possible to our shareholders. Correct. Everything else be damned. And so, you know, any CEO could go watch a Michael Moore film and be like, totally with the guy, but I just, my hands are tied. My hands are tied. The purpose of a company is to just crank the money and the business roundtable says so, and that's the law. So in August, they put out a statement building on a lot of pressure that's been in the society and frankly, this populist moment we're in and the Bernie Warren moment, which we can talk about. And they put out a statement saying, mea culpa, we were wrong. That turns out not to be the only purpose. They basically realize what every five-year-old understands, which is that like there are other people in life and you have to take account of them. Um, and they put out a statement saying the purpose of a business is actually to take care of a bunch of stakeholders. Shareholders are one stakeholder. Labor is another. The country is another. You know, there's various stakeholders and you got to kind of balance among them. So, you know, for a lot of business people out there, although this is a very obvious thing, this was like a really big, deep thought that they felt they had. Great. And it was reported to us, the masses, by our media, our liberal media, papers like the New York Times. This was written about yes. in such a, it literally was, if I, sorry to go back to the Vatican reference, but it was like Jesus had come down yes. to hand out all the loaves and fishes to everybody so that everyone would eat, yes. everybody would have a yes. seat at the table, everybody would be taken care of now. Because they had determined that it was wrong to be greedy. Yes. And we were no longer going to think just about ourselves or our shareholders. We were going to think about you. You, whoever yes. you are, wherever you live, we're on your side. And But, but and, it's almost and, worse and it was, than that. It wasn't even questioned. What it was really like was if I make an announcement on January 1st, 2020, Anand will not eat French fries in 2020. The way to report that is to say, Anand, you know, and if I've eaten French fries like every year until then, the way to report that story is, despite years of eating French fries, Anand has made a thus unverifiable claim that he will not eat French fries in the year to come. At the present moment, there is no way to independently verify this, and history suggests that it's unlikely. Okay, that's the way to report that. The and, wrong and, way to report that. And the last line from the anchor who's, who just said what you said yeah. before they go to commercial break. Well, we shall see. Exactly. <laughs> That's the way to report that. In mocking you. And, and essentially, the, the, essentially what I just did with fries, they did with rapacious profiteering. Except the way it was reported by a lot of folks was big business 
has turned a corner and will no longer be rapaciously profiteering. They wrote the end of 2020's story when yes. all that had happened was the pledge. So I was included. And there, however, their gesture for many of these outlets, their gesture to skepticism was having an Anand quote in the story. So I was the kicker quote in the New York Times, a role that I'm happy to play, having written many kickers in my lifetime. And the kicker quote was basically, pledges of voluntary virtue aren't going to fix this, right? Jamie Dimon must have read that story, and there was an accompanying story in Fortune, which I also played a similar gadfly role. Mm-hmm. Somebody read it for him and gave him the right. summary of it. Right, just, exactly. Just to be clear. Could have made picture PowerPoint, a PowerPoint about an article is probably yes. what he gets. And he emails me. He's like, give me a call when you have a moment to discuss. <laughs> never, heard, never met this guy in my life. Wow. You know, but he did, you know, he has, uh, he has committed various, you know, his bank has committed various forms of fraud on an epic scale. So while he didn't have my respect, he had my attention. Right. Uh, and so I called him while I was on vacation. And I actually was like, you know, I'm on vacation. You may be on vacation. Uh, but I appreciate the reaching out to have a dialogue. I believe in dialogue. Uh, I'll send you my book. He made clear very, he's like, you know, in the opening moments, he's like, you know, just, I haven't read your book, but, uh, but yeah, I heard about it. So that's good. So, you know, okay. Mm, Okay. Hearing about a book is the new reading it. So I was like, how about this? I'll send you the book. Let's, we're both in New York in a couple of weeks after our vacations, after you've actually read what I'm, where I'm coming from, let's have a dialogue. And he was like, uh, no, no, that won't be necessary. Uh, let's just talk now and we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see if it makes sense to have a further conversation. So did he get on the phone then or? So I was on the, you know, that was on the phone already. Well, that is on the phone. So oh. then we just talked for half an hour. Mm. Cause I thought, you know what? Ex- further exposure to my ideas is not going to increase the odds of a conversation. Meanwhile, uh, you know, a journalist friend of mine is texting me cause I'm telling him this is happening. He's like, remember, you're a journalist. Unless he says it's off the record, it's not off the record, which is a useful, you know, useful thing to remember. And we had a half an hour conversation that was by turns revelatory and maddening. Um, Maddening because it just felt like this was a guy who thought he was calling to acquire ideas or a perspective he didn't yet have but who is almost constitutionally incapable of absorbing information outside his corporate libertarian banker framework. There, was, there were just no cracks, right? The Leonard Cohen line, like, there were no cracks for the light to get in, in this guy. Um, and so just a couple of the exchanges, you know, so, so he says at some point, you know, I treat all my workers well, and I'm not sure why they're making all this fuss about regulation. You know, and I said, okay. Let's stipulate, which I may not agree with, that you treat all your workers well at J.P. Morgan Chase. There's a bunch of companies in this group, and we know many of them from well-reported public reporting. Like We know many of them do not treat workers well. and You can't deny that. So how do you reckon with the fact that you got these CEOs who've signed this pledge this week saying they're going to treat everybody well, but we know how they're treating them now? And he says to me, you know, Ananda, I, I know a lot of those CEOs. They're good guys. They, they, I, I know them. They would never treat workers badly. I mean, I don't know how, how unthoughtful you have to be to say that. But what came next is what was really surprising. And he says, you know, a lot of people just don't like to work. Wow. 
Wow. And it took my breath away. Wow. This is a man who is the keeper of the hard-earned deposits of millions and millions of people who are hanging by fingernails to dignity. He is holding their money. He's holding their mortgages. And the fact that he thinks so little of many of them, that issues of worker exploitation or wage theft or underpayment that are so rampant in this country may in many cases just be issues of people being lazy. And it, the conversation led me to this place where it really helped me understand something, which is, I think you, you or I would, would sit around and, and, and easily malign the Koch brothers, the dead one or the alive one, mm-hmm. whichever one you like more. And that's an easy one. I think what the conversation helped me understand was that I think someone like Jamie Dimon genuinely believes that he is not a slightly handsomer third Koch brother. I think Mark Zuckerberg genuinely believes that he's not the fourth liberal Koch brother. Right. He's not one of the bad guys in his head. In right. his, I'm, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg thinks he's not a Koch brother. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if you called him right now and said, do you think you're a Koch brother? He would say, I think I am meaningfully different from a Koch brother. I think if you put a lie detector on him, he would pass it if you asked yes. him that question. Yes. And if he'd say, I'm nothing like the Koch brothers. Nothing like them. It would show true, 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 true. One of the only things he might be honest about. And yet, what that conversation revealed to me is that a lot of the people who we think of as kind of like democratic plutocrats mm-hmm. are in some ways more dangerous versions of the Koch brothers because they are the Koch brothers in costume, right? They are the wolves in sheep's clothing proverbially. And it really helped me understand that we're not going to be able to count on the woke, liberal, do-gooder billionaires to save us from billionaire capture. Right. I had a not a similar encounter, uh, but this story really resonates with me. I, um, I uh, ran into Lloyd Blankfein, who uh, until recently was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And um, now a DJ is in charge. <laughs> yes. We'll get into that later. Um, the, I was at an event at the Oscars. I was on the board of the Academy. And so there was this event and he walks into the event um, with Harvey Weinstein Um just not to not to not to pile on to this uh, story any more than what you're about to hear. He sees me. He walks in with Weinstein after the Weinstein revelations. No, it's all before. Okay, it's all before. And he sees me, and he comes up to me, and he said, "I don't like what you, what you said about Goldman Sachs in your movie." So first of all, I'm like, "Wow, you actually watched my movie." The movie he's referring to is Capitalism: A Love Story. Um, um, the title probably fooled him into the theater. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> Oh, I was. He thought was, you were finally atoning, Michael. Uh, yes, I, I was told very early on uh, with my first movie. I was warned, actually, that uh, I need to remember that 50% of Americans don't get irony. If you make the ironic statement, they will think you're. that's how you actually feel. So, yes, yeah, so uh, it is not a love story, by the way, in capitalism. It's a story of mass destruction and uh, tragedy. 
You will get a refund on your tickets yes. if you did if actually you did, think it was. Actually, if you did, if you are out there and you're listening to this and you went to Capitalism Love Story thinking it was going to be a love story and you took a date and that ended up being the last date, I will refund that uh, ticket for you. He comes up to me and he says, I don't know why you attack Goldman Sachs. You know we're Democrats. That's what he says to me. Wow. He says, now a lot of firms on Wall Street aren't, but we're Democrats at Goldman Sachs. And, and uh, I said, well, well, actually, I, I know that Goldman Sachs was the largest uh, private contributor to Barack Obama's first campaign for president. Yes, that's right. You know, we helped to uh, bring about Obama. And I said, well, you know, if you want to have this conversation now, I can tell you why. First of all, you can call yourself a Democrat all you want. But if you if you are uh, calling up the uh, what people in my family grew up with as union people as people whose my father's first vote was for Franklin Roosevelt. If that's the democratic party you think you're uh, aspiring to uh, your actions don't show any of this. And he said, well, isn't it enough that we, I mean, the good that we do, the money that we give to the candidates that you, Mr. Moore support. (laughs) I said, I want to live in a system where you're not giving any money and they're not taking any money from you. And this went on and on like this. And then finally, he says, I want to give you a Rorschach test. I said, oh, uh, sure. You know, I had to like stop for a second to try to remember what that was. And <laughs> I actually did. Go like, to, is that some painting you own? No, or? no, no. I went to, I did go to a year of college at the Flint branch of the University of Michigan. So I did take a look. Like, you took second, classes in the Rorschach a, drawing center? I took a 101 in psychology. I took a 101 in philosophy. You know, I had, I had enough before I dropped out. So uh, he said, he said, Bill Gates. His tombstone. What does it say on his tombstone? Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates, the the founder of Microsoft, or Bill Gates, the man who eradicated malaria on the planet Earth. What what's going to be that that one line if he gets one line on the tombstone? And I said uh, both, except there'll be an and in the middle. It'll just be one sentence. He goes, no, you can't say that. You have to pick one. And I said, I think your point you're getting to is that you're talking to me and you're thinking, well, I'm going to say malaria, of course. This is a great thing that he did. But, you know, all of our lives are are going to be judged, whether we judge them ourselves or others will judge us, uh, on the balance between the good and the evil that we do. And I hope that all of us are going to end up on the good side and more having done more good things than bad things. And uh, he said, yeah, I knew you wouldn't. I knew you wouldn't answer this. Um, the answer, the correct answer is Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, because I could prove to you that that saved more lives than the work he's done with malaria. I said, wow, you really believe this, don't you? Wow. <laughs> you turns you, out Lloyd Blankfein is a lot like the character Lloyd Blankfein. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and this was, he was this, we weren't in public. I mean, we were in public. It was like a. Well, well, you are now, but well, that's true. <laughs> well, yes, like you said about a journalist. I mean, I, nobody should talk to me unless you know. I'm, I am not here to be the keeper of your secrets, especially if you're the head of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> and it was just, but it was such an amazing moment of that is he. He said it was such force. Yes, his belief in it was so strong, and the belief that he as a Democrat is doing good. Their only hope 
for this ruse to be successful is if we fall for it. You know, and what's really, this, this takes it to a slightly dark place, but I think it's worth going there for a second. Because one of the comments that people, you know, when you write a book, people come to you with, as they read it, the meaning they make out of it that may be beyond your own contemplation. And one of the persistent things that I've heard from people, very moving, is that people who've spent a lot of their lives in different types of abusive relationships have said to me, you know, whether parental or spousal or whatever else, that the dynamics that I'm describing about plutocrats and regular people very much mirror a lot of the, you know, on a grand scale, large numbers scale, the abusive dynamics within households, within families. And when I hear Lloyd Blankfein saying to you, I can't be hurting people because I'm on the team with them. That's, there's an abusive, like almost domestic kind of vibe there of like, I'm in your, I can't be hurting you. I'm in your family. Right. Why would I abuse her? She's my wife. And what we all understand from that situation in the abuse context is it is precisely the proximity that gives you the alibi to keep doing it. And so the reason Lloyd Blankfein is dangerous is precisely because he's a Democrat. I think people see the Kansas chemical industry magnates from 100 miles away. We're not defenseless. We're not, we're not totally you know, impervious to their, to their uh, you know, pretensions. But I think we see them for who they are. And we understand that they are strangers to us coming to try to pillage. Mm-hmm. It's the Democrats that have this domestic relationship to us, the Zuckerbergs, the Blank Fines, the probably, presumably Jeff Bezos, others, who are people who believe the things that many of us believe. They're for gay rights. They're, they don't like these kids being locked up on the border. They're woke. They use the right terms for transgender people. They're, they're on the right side of what feels like the winds of change. They don't, you know, they're not white nationalists. No, in fact, he puts as the slogan on the front page of his newspaper every day, democracy dies in darkness. And I think all of that is genuine, but what it does, and this is sort of my point, is that what it does is it gives them an opportunity to do a second thing also which is to justify and entrench a system, a set of economic, political, social arrangements that continues to generate our social problems on a scale much vaster, much vaster than, than any of these fixes mm. that they're engaged in. It, it would have been, actually what you're saying is that it, I'd be more relieved if Blankfein had just said he was a Republican. Yes, um, I think we'd regulate him a lot better. Then we can, yeah, we can deal with that. But if he comes off as a Democrat, funds the Democrats, and has his Democratic candidates in his stable, that's a, that's a far more dangerous thing. Yes, in the same way that people say, "Well, my good, but if we get rid of Trump, we'll we'll have Pence," and I'm going good, good because now it's out. It's we can deal with Pence. Yes, because Pence is very honest about his belief that. The earth is only 6,000 years old and Adam and Eve wrote on dinosaurs um, that uh, 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 gay people can be converted into heterosexuality. I mean, every point that Pence brings up, let's have the great debate. We will win the debate with the American people. 
the American people will side with us on the side of facts, science, um, and human decency. And he, and he, Mr. Pence, will be defeated. Uh, don't be afraid of that. Yeah. Be afraid of the one who comes. The first time I met Donald Trump uh, after my first film and came to move to New York, um, he was either the co-host or he was attending a benefit for Planned Parenthood hmm. in New York City. Or one of the one of the you know um, women's reproductive rights groups or whatever. The irony of it again is is so. Listen, this this issue that you're discussing the the way that the rich um, try to pass themselves off as one of us. You know, some of the great science fiction, great horror films of all time, um, including uh, the one from this past year, Us, uh, the Jordan uh, Peele film, is is when the alien, the enemy, whatever, is able to take our shape and form and talk like us. That's when it's most dangerous because we don't know who the real humans are and who the other ones who are yes. going to kill us are. And um, so so the successful rich who figured out how to do that, and you can, you can go down Broadway here, just a few blocks from here, every day when I walk by it, there in Lincoln Center is the David Koch uh, New yep. York City Ballet Dance Theater. Yep. And Lincoln Center made a decision to take money from him, obviously, so he could have his name on that building. And in his mind, the more that he can do of things like that, people will be a little less anxious to go after him. I hear this about Bloomberg now. People say, well, Mike... You know, you made Bowling for Columbine. I mean, this is, he's been so good on guns. He's funded all these moms groups and these anti-gun groups. You know, Mike, he's, you know, he gets climate change. Ah, you go down the whole, you know, I have to listen yep. to this whole thing. And I'm like, okay, number one, please understand that um, he's doing many of these things as the cover. At the end of this movie, we call human life on planet Earth. He and others like him will pull up that rubbery thing off their face and reveal themselves as the people who benefited by making our species go extinct. Even though they themselves were posing and were one of us, um, the short-term gain and pleasure was far greater than anything else. Totally. And you have to, and, and we need to talk about Bloomberg for a second, because as with your Gates example, when I have gone around talking about the book and talking about the problem with different billionaires or with the billionaire class in general, the pushback you get is sort of the pushback when you talk about white supremacy and then someone brings up the fact that they know like one white guy who's not racist and that's the rebuttal, right? It's the not all white people, not all billionaires right. Right. argument. And the two of the kind of trump cards in the not all billionaires argument are Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. Right, because they're for climate, they're for this other stuff. So let's talk about Bloomberg for a second. First of all, how did he make his money? Now, it's not opioids. It's not making money by killing people. Granted. But he sold those terminals to the financial industry during the great financialization of American life over the last 40 years, right? So he wasn't the banker himself, but he was a very important like informational lubricant in this engine of financialization. 
that is behind, once again, like everything you've gone after in your movies. That engine of financialization is why the car industry turned out the way it did. It's why the gun and private prison world ended up the way it did. It's why climate change is now where it is. It's why senseless wars have been fought. All of those, behind all of those things is the rapacious profiteering we talked about. Now, behind all of those things is the growing power of financial institutions relative to us as people, but also relative even to the management of companies, right? The investors over the last 30, 40 years became more important than the companies they were investing in and in their ability to dictate terms and drive these companies in the directions they wanted and force them to do to grow more and do more. So Michael Bloomberg, without being a guy who pushed for those things to happen, made his fortune by selling motor oil to people who were stealing the future from America. And it's really, really important to say that and understand that. I, I don't see anybody out there talking about that. That fortune is skimming a little bit off the top of the spoils of financialization, which is one of the worst things to happen to this country in the last 50 years, right? That's the money that we're talking about when we talk about Michael Bloomberg, number one. Number right. two, what he has done philanthropically, yes, it's, it's causes that you and I might agree with. I agree with him on the guns issue. I agree with him on climate. But there has been evidence that I was seeing a story from 2008, and then again, he's doing it this time, where he has used his philanthropy and the organizations he gives money to, arts institutions, other institutions. And in 2008 was found through interviews by the New York Times um, by Michael Barbaro, who's now the great host of The Daily, was a reporter at the time, found that a lot of these institutions that Bloomberg had given philanthropic money to had been pressured to advocate for him getting a third term as mayor of New York City. Mm. Wow. Now think about that. To my mind, that should be illegal. Right. Philanth a lot of things that are legal when done through the philanthropic route that I actually don't even think would be legal if done as a business, right? You, you, you're giving money to civic organizations in New York and you're urging them to then testify to essentially change the law in a mini urban dictator level thing where you like- Because this was a term, term, limits. term limited, two term, if you're a mayor of New York, yes. two terms. He was coming to the end of his second term and he wanted a third one. Yes, Geez, who does this sound like? Kim um, Jong-un? I mean, I don't know. Donald yeah. Trump? Pick, yeah. your, pick your poison. <clears throat> but that's exactly Just what, because he's a more moderate guy. And he got, and he, and he bought off a lot of the establishment of New York City through these contributions uh, that he made. In other words, if I can just put it this yeah. way, he used money for essentially extortion purposes. In other words, give me my third term. He used money. Um, or held back money from people who weren't playing ball with him in order to interfere with the election system of the city of New York. That sounds familiar. Well, I'm just saying, this is what drives me crazy about liberals, Democrats, or whatever, when they can't own up to that this side has also done it. Yep. And maybe we do it in a kinder, gentler way. Maybe the outcome is the ballet gets more money. <laughs> yes. Trump isn't trying to help out any... Any when liberals do it, it's ballet. classier. It's classier. It seems smart. You know, it, it appreciates the cultural intellectuality of the city, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. But it's still the same thing. And I just read this past week what you were talking about that there was a story, I think it was in the Times, where how many 
mayors exactly. around the country are uh, endorsing him. It's his biggest source of endorsements. And why are they endorsing him? It turns out all of the mayors, all, according to the New York Times, of the mayors have endorsed him. Yeah. Have gone through this mayoral program funded by his foundation. And so that's, so I actually saw that story first and I tweeted about it. And then, and then someone um, sent me this 2008 story. I was like, he did this back then too. Now, They've gone through his yeah his mayoral boot camp or whatever yes. this thing is the good government that he's yes. you know, trying to support, and also I believe a number of these mayors have done uh, what he has done or did do. They have to they essentially have to support his program, so they've done things like push for local gun laws, push for local climate change, uh, make statements saying that even though Trump is pulling out of the Paris Accords, our city is going to stay in the Paris Accords now. If you're listening to this, you could say, uh, well, Mike, isn't that, I mean, okay, yeah, he shouldn't have to do it that way. He's buying their support. But look at the end result. Maybe less gun murders, maybe a cleaner planet. So if that's how he has to do it, and I say to them, really, is that the world we want to live in now where the only way we can hope to get the few crumbs of the things that we believe in is if if billionaires buy off other mayors in order to get their support when he or she runs for president? I mean, w- w- Bloomberg solutions to these issues are the kind of solutions that deepen the problem, right? Like there are, and I think we all understand this in personal life. If you are, you know, um, like have a, a health problem you're dealing with, or if you are trying to raise your kids in a certain way, like there's certain ways of solving a problem that, deepen the fundamental problem, right? You can stop your kid crying by giving them a cupcake. It will stop them crying. It will absolutely stop them Correct. crying. Right, right. Right? You've deepened the problem. You've, you've entrenched the, the problem. The real issue there is your kid, like, not being able to self-soothe or not being able to, you know, regulate. And you've now made them quiet in a way that increases the likelihood that problem's going to come back worse tomorrow or later that afternoon. I have a nearly five-year-old and a two-year-old. I understand this intimately. And so similarly- Do you use the cupcake method? I, I use the- I can't say I haven't used it. I, I've, I used to use the juice box uh, method. <laughs> juice that, box is incredibly effective. Because cause then I could rationalize, uh, well, it's healthy, it's fruit. Yeah, exactly. But I'm really sugaring Correct. them up. Correct. And so these are, these are what we might call juice box solutions, where someone like Michael Bloomberg is stepping in on climate. That is true. And so we do stop crying for a certain period of time. But what he is, the deeper thing he has done is entrench and justify the notion that billionaires know best, entrench and justify the power of billionaires to dictate public priorities, justify and entrench the reputation of him and his class of people in a way that on balance, is going to fuel and, and, and help secure the power of the people who are also causing climate change. I think what someone like Michael Bloomberg, I think, doesn't understand is every time he makes it something better on climate change, an, another part of what he is doing is helping the people who run ExxonMobil stay in power. And I, and I know that if Michael Bloomberg was here or Howard Wolfson who works with him, they would so vehemently disagree with this. But I'm trying to urge them to understand this at a deeper level. It's not that what they're doing is not what they're doing. It is. It's just giving off a byproduct, which is 
justifying the very system of plutocracy that is behind these problems. And, and, and when you think about, you know, Bloomberg used to do this thing when he was mayor of New York City, where he would propose something and then it, that would historically have been funded by the city. But to save the city money, quote unquote, he would fund it through Bloomberg Philanthropies. And there's actually some of these things all around the city, certain museums, things that normally would have been public priorities. And it was a little bit of a show, like, I want to do this as mayor, and I'm, I don't need to nickel and dime on it the same way I would if it was public money, because I'll just do it. Now, that might seem nice to people. You're saving them taxpayer money. When you now hear these stories of how the price of that was people actually being forced to speak up for a third term or now endorse him, um, you know, forced in the classic mafia way where seemingly you have a choice. Um, it makes you understand something very profound about philanthropy that I have been trying to argue, which is that philanthropy isn't only a kind act, big philanthropy. It is a kind act, mm -hmm. but there's a couple other things going on. Number one, it provides a powerful means of extending the power of a rich person. In addition to being a kind act, it allows you to, you know, get people to say you should have a third term. That is an exertion of power. Right. And a tax deductible one. So you're getting a tax deduction for that philanthropic gift, but you're reaping a very personal reward, which is a bunch of allies out there in the society who depend on your checks. Right. You're, you're reaping benefits that actually you, you can't buy these benefits. No. Um, but in the in the giving of the the yes. largesse, the generosity um, has this ripple effect that comes back to you in a wonderful yes. way for yourself, that, and that is unregulated in a way that a lot of business transactions are actually not unregulated. And as you said, there's a t you get a tax deduction for it too. Second, you get to clean your name. Now that may be most may not be most relevant to Michael Bloomberg, but you see in people like the Sacklers or others, Jeff Bezos, where you really have. You know, you have a PR problem on your hands. The way you've made your money is intrinsically problematic. You don't just have one little oil spill, like the, the you know, ExxonMobil. Like the intrinsic act of the business is a big fat reputation problem, right? Right, right. The only thing you can do, that's not like getting a better publicist. That's not going to solve that problem. Right. You have to do some pretty epic do-gooding to cleanse that name. And philanthropy has come to function for many plutocrats and big companies as a kind of drive-through reputational laundromat for that problem. And it works. It does work. Even in just the way that they, Walmart, uh, the commercials that they run now yes. are, well, you would call them, if you want to put a label on them, incredibly progressive. They show gay couples, gay families. Yes. They show gay people kissing each other. Yes. In the Walmart commercial. They, they do things and you're thinking, this is Walmart? Yep. Oh my God, they've joined the human race. And this is the new woke manic hypercapitalism, right? The woke manic hypercapitalism is a company like Walmart now supporting the right of a broke-ass man to love a broke-ass man. Right. <laughs> right? Right. Love right. whichever other fellow broke-ass person you want to love. Right. And that's this way in which sometimes identity politics can be used to entrench economic exclusion because it gives you this easy way 
of rhetorically seeming like you're part of the future. Right. But you don't have to pay those that gay couple any more than, you know, um, you might have before. Bloomberg, um, you know, as we're talking about this here in, in, uh, in December of uh, 2019, uh, we don't know quite exactly where this is going to go with his run for the presidency. But uh, I'm going to share something I've never um, revealed publicly before. Uh, back in somewhere in the late 90s, um, he asked me out on a date. Uh, not a uh, traditional date that implies sexuality, but um, important. Yes, yeah, let yeah. me make that uh, clear right yeah. right at the start here. We knew we did know he dated widely. <clears throat> yes, well, he called me. <laughs> I didn't know if he knew who I was. This is you know, it's back in the nineties. This is before you know I wrote "Stupid White Man" or "Bowling for Columbine." Wrote made uh, Fahrenheit 911. This is all before. This is in my early Roger and me. Mm-hmm. you know, TV nation days. And he said, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you, I'd like to ask you to go to dinner with me, except the dinner is the white house correspondence dinner. And now this is a thing in case you've probably people listening to this have probably heard of the white house correspondence here, mainly because they usually have a comedian up there that is really hopefully sticking it to the people in power. And, um, he, um, and so the way this dinner works is that, uh, it's, it's set up by the uh, White House correspondents, so it's a journalism function to raise money for their charities. But what they do is they get to invite celebrities to be at their table. So Bloomberg, at that time, the head of Bloomberg News, has called me to be his, to walk the red carpet with him into this thing. So long before he's, you know, mayor. And I'm, you know, I'm of two minds immediately. Right. One, I don't want to go to anything where I have to dress up. Right. All right. As is clear from you, you can see me right. sitting here right now. You're, you're fairly casual. He's being polite. Um, <laughs> it's the middle of December and I'm in shorts uh, and we're in New York City. They're breathable shorts. <clears throat> but they are. You've yeah. noticed this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they are breathable shorts. I am a writer. I, you know, I observe. That's very good. Um, I get paid by the observation. The, um, so he, um, so right away, I don't want to do it. Um, I don't want I don't want to. I don't know what I'd say to him, but then when I thought that, I thought, wait a minute, what I would say to you, I want him to talk. This is a, what a golden opportunity to go and just listen and observe and just, Mm -hmm. so I said, yes. And, um, I uh, show up there with him. Well, it turns out, uh, I'm not saying he was two timing me, but he invited more than just me to be his uh, date at the table. Wow. So I have to share him with um bill daly who at that time was the secretary of treasury he was the he's the brother of the mayor of chicago at that time richard daly jr um and uh but he was he's the guy in charge of the money bloomberg has got the secretary of the united states treasury um here um you know just as i say that now i think wait a minute was it commerce or, or commerce treasury? Yeah. He was chief of staff. Even worse. Yeah. Okay. Even worse. Yeah. Cause if all he was, was just counting the money in the gold yeah. bricks, uh, that's yeah. one job, but to be the secretary of commerce and to, and to sit at Mike Bloomberg's table. Like, were you guys on either side of him? Yes. Yes. Well, and there was one more, he was actually three timing. Wow. Um, he, <laughs> it was him and, uh, uh, the secretary of commerce, Bill Daly, and Charlie Rose. 
Wow. Now, this is pre-Me Too, Charlie Rose. Well, but, it was pre too. Well, pre Me Too revelation. Revel- correct. He was he was very much a participant and and a a, a a proficient participant in Me Me Too behavior, as we now know. But of course, none of us knew that at the time. And and I see him at the table with us, or he's walking the red carpet. And my first thought is with him is I had been blacklisted, banned from his show for almost ten years at that point. Wow. It's a long story. I don't need to get into it, but suffice it to say, he kept calling me Roger Moore during the interview. Uh, not an unusual dyslexic uh, issue. Uh, dyslexia is a common thing with us, all of us, some of us. Um, my film was called Roger and Me. My name is Michael Moore, and I look like James Bond, I guess. <laughs> so, so he kept, and finally, I just I interrupted him right during the like interview. I just. Because I'm just thinking at home, people. I'm not worried about me. I didn't call me anything you want. I don't care. But people at home are thinking, is this guy an idiot? Right. And he was so upset that I essentially interrupted and stopped the interview to get him to call me by my given name. Um, not one that's hard to pronounce. I was put on the list of don't wow. ever have him back. I'm starting to understand why he never had someone named Anand Girdardas on the show. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Police. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so I went over and sat beside him and had it out with him in a nice way though. Like this is, you can't keep a grudge like this. This is crazy. First of all, you're not even Irish, you know? I mean, <laughs> this, you know, the old joke that, uh, I suffer from Irish Alzheimer's disease, uh, which means I, I forget everything except holding the grudge. <laughs> so, so it's like, you don't have a right to, to be mad at me 10 years later. Because I just wanted you to call me by my name. Did he acknowledge that he was mad about that? Yes. And, and he said, you know, I have a clear memory of this. And you're right. I, uh, I, I have not thought about it now in years. But at the time, I, I, I thought, well, I don't need that on my show. And uh, I will have you back. And he had me back. Wow. I thought, oh, okay. So the dinner was starting to have, you know, certain benefits. At the table next to us uh, was Susan McDougall who was caught up in the whole whitewater thing with the Clintons, had a long talk with her about Bill and Hillary and their days as friends together in Arkansas. Um, I never got to make a film about that, um, but it's always, you know, I store all this stuff. So my point with Bloomberg is uh, that this is the kind of thing where I'm, af- I'm afraid that people will, wow, you know, of all the people he could have taken to the correspondence center, he took Michael Moore. That's how cool he is. Yeah. That's how open and progressive he what is. What a woke guy. He's so he was woke before it was woke. Yes. And and nobody was going to invite me in the establishment to their dinners or their galas or whatever. But Mike Bloomberg did. Yes. And I I also know how that's intended for me. He doesn't know what I'm going to go on to do. This is all again before I, the the large movies and the, all the stuff that, you know. But don't don't think for a second that that hasn't always been in my mind that mm-hmm. When I was uh, somebody way out on that left limb, perceived as somebody that was had to be persona non grata at an event like this, that he brought me in and he had me at the table and mm. sat proudly next to me and said, yeah, I'm sitting next to Michael fucking Moore, mm. like it or lump it. And what am I, what am I supposed to do 10 years later, you know, when he does want that third term, am I going to speak out against exactly. that? Exactly. Am you, I, that you know, you've, you've, you've I hope it. I would. You know, or was if I was in the, I was 
back in Michigan then, but still. And what you got to think about to take it from an intimate story to, although not too intimate, fortunately, to um, you. to the scale of the society is that you got to remember there's about 400 something billion dollars being given away philanthropically every year in this country, much of it concentrated at the top, at the people with those kinds of fortunes. And you got to think about when you zoom out from that one story, how many silences are being bought, how many testimonies to go help someone boost their power are being ordered up, how many endorsements are being ginned up. Um, what is the cumulative effect of those who are out there making a killing using making a difference to protect the right to make a killing? And the people who are using this rhetoric of changing the world, using it to entrench the right um, to actually keep their world the same. And we've seen this, and maybe we should talk a little bit about 2020, since we're both kind of interested in politics. You know, I think we're starting to see in 2020, both with Bernie Sanders' campaign and Elizabeth Warren's, that the billionaires are freaked out. I've named this the great Plute freak out of 2019. Fortunately, the year is coming to an end, but it'll continue into the next year, so I'll have to rename it. And what is happening is they are basically saying, to go back to the win-win conversation we had, they are not saying, if Bernie or Elizabeth wins, it'll be bad for me billionaire. They're not saying that. That's the truth. And by the way, I respect that. If that was the argument, I may still vote anyway, but I respect that. I get that. I actually think self-preservation and wanting to hold what's yours is a very normal human instinct. And if you said to me, I don't like these wealth taxes things because I got a lot of wealth and I'd pay more and I don't like that. I disagree, but respect it. They don't say that. What they say is, if you do this, this will be bad for you. Mark Zuckerberg, I call this economic concern trolling, right? Where you're, you're pretending you're really worried about the other person, but in this paternalistic way that's really about you. So you say, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said, you know, the problem with these wealth taxes is there would be less money for medical, less diversity in spending on medical research. Because right now, Billionaires are funding all these different medical research things because billionaires always fund like their disease, right? Bill Gates may be an exception. But they have some weird heart thing and then suddenly there's a center at UCLA for that weird heart thing. So it's biographical giving, right? And so Mark Zuckerberg's claim is like you're not, the, the subtext is like you're going to get some disease someday and there's not going to be a cure for it because all the government funding was centralized on medical research and it wasn't billionaires sprinkling their different ideas diversely. Leon Kuberman, the tearful billionaire who Elizabeth Warren makes cry every time she drops a plan. Um, Leon Kuberman says, you know, I'm going to give so much money away, me and my friends, to all these good causes and those good causes will be hurt if you tax my wealth more. And Michael Bloomberg says, if you do Medicare for all, it would bankrupt our country. For years, he's not saying, I want to keep my money, which is normal, right? If they just said the hip hop video thing, which is like they like their money and they throw it up in the air and they like it, they like having it around them, right? No one right. would begrudge them. I mean, we may vote against them, but no one would begrudge them or think they're frauds. But it, instead, I'm concerned it would bankrupt America to do the healthcare program that all the other rich countries already have that didn't bankrupt them. And this kind of 
behavior is so transparent. And what is exciting to me about 2020 is that I actually think people are waking up to it and seeing through it and seeing through the neoliberal smoke in a way that I do not think, certainly in my lifetime, um, we have seen the democratic electorate do. I think that's because <clears throat> these wealthy people who claim to be somewhat liberal or progressive um, have taken it too far, taken it too far to the point where people realized, and I saw this really starting back in 08 uh, with the housing collapse. So many people's lives, livelihoods were ruined. Already people had been losing their pensions and everything, but boy, when it comes to their home yeah. and how many people were evicted and, and how many of those, the children of these people who might've been eight or 10 years old at the time and, and had to suffer as a result of this, they're voters now. These young people um, have seen it. Yes. The rich expose their hand. You call them trolls in the way that they try to put, use this fear. Like, you know, you tax me too much. I won't, I'm not going to have the money to fund the finding the disease that's going to save your mother when she's old. Um, and broke because of the other stuff I did in my business. <laughs> well, that's why I call it terrorism. It's a form of terrorism. It's economic terrorism. They are terrorists because they do exactly what a terrorist wants to do scare the shit out of you so that you'll behave in a certain way and and do little things that really they don't necessarily ultimately have the power over you a terrorist but if they can get you acting in a way where you make your decisions out of fear uh and that you or your family or loved ones will be hurt as a result of that then they've won and and this is what they're hoping to do the zuckerbergs and etc they're hoping that by instilling this fear they will stop themselves from being taxed and and they will elect the people that they want in power i i think it's it's one of the most evil and insidious things that takes place these days and it's often done in the name of i'm a democrat i'm a liberal i'm a progressive you know look at yes. me look at what i've done trust me trust me i have earned your trust by doing this i've also participated in creating an economy that has such an enormous gap between the haves and the have nots that you probably will not be able to pay off your college yes. loan. I mean, the pitch is please let me rob you. I'm woke. Right. Wow. Um, can I just say that again? <laughs> what their pitch is, is please let me rob you because I'm woke. Let Mark Zuckerberg rob you of a free and fair election that is not the platform for a Russian cyber war operation. Let him do that because he cares about immigration mm. the way you do. Mm. Let Michael Bloomberg deepen the hold of the financial industry and of billionaires over public life and literally attempt to purchase a federal presidential election because he's woke on climate change and gun rights. Let someone who in the financial industry has wrought devastation on Michigan and other parts of this country through the housing crisis. Let them reinvent themselves as revitalizing America's urban centers and go on 60 Minutes talking about how they're helping Detroit come back from the thing they literally did to Detroit a second ago. Let them do that because they're, they're, they're woke. And we have to stop allowing ourselves, consenting 
which is what I believe we're often doing, consenting to being robbed by people um, who are woke. When you wrote that op-ed this summer and you got the email and then the call from uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. Um, Just that you may not correct that. So it, I was, it was a, not an op-ed, it was a quote in the New York Times article. A quote in the New York Times article. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was a month or two later when I'm watching 60 Minutes one night. Correct. And, you know, they usually have, they have three segments on 60 Minutes, the three stories that they follow. There's sometimes like a strong piece of journalism. Uh, uh, then there's uh, kind of a lighter fare. And then there's maybe um, a, a profile on a concert pianist. Uh, that's generally the gist of it. And... <laughs> <laughs> they should let you run 60 minutes. I mean, you got the whole formula there. You can I, bang these things out. I, mean, I could do it in my sleep, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but they save a little time, call it 30 minutes. <clears throat> no, I would I would try to get a second show called 30 minutes, and it would be basically, you know, you and I and Naomi Klein and a few others. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Be, be telling the other side of the truth. Exactly. Here, uh, or what they call the truth. Um, no, but they did not one, but two segments that night on Jamie Dimon. I think that's the one I was referring to. He's like, walk, wasn't he walking around? Was it Detroit? Yeah. Well, no. The first segment is how how woke he is right. in his business, and there he brings them into chase, and they walk around and they do what they do. And no child labor. No, no, no. Yes, they're very good about all these things, and uh, good guy, good politics, good heart. Part two, segment two, is Detroit. He goes to Detroit with them and shows us. How he is trying to save Detroit. From Jamie Dimon. Yes. Yes. So Jamie Dimon's trying to save Detroit. Yes. From Jamie Dimon. He, correct. Yes. No, not once is he asked while we're walking around Detroit of this, this devastation and destruction that we're looking at. Didn't you really have a role in this? Are you being serious? That, that didn't come up as a question? Not that. No, it was kind of, there was the sort of softball liberal yeah, but you know, and then and then he was very quick to to deny uh, that they had anything to do with it. And then actually, well, but there is, you know, and then he immediately. God, it was so. This actually should be. They should teach this in all these awful um, colleges now have journalism schools, but they're really for students who are going to be publicists, right, and marketers, uh, not real journalists. Um, and the way he spun that around and being from Michigan myself and, and caring deeply about uh, Detroit, I could feel the sort of, okay, I know who you are, but you're going to save that person down the block. You're in the ambulance on the way to save that person. I'm not going to stand on the street and stop you in that ambulance. It was so skillfully done. Uh, uh, Basil, we should see if we could uh, uh, put this up on the website uh, this week. Uh, for Rumble, um, uh, the the a link so you can watch the Jamie Dimon uh, twofer um, on that night, and um, you can't help but leave it thinking that okay, maybe he's done some bad stuff, and maybe he's a a rich dude, um, but you know he's trying to do something to help. Yes, and I think what's thinking about it relative to your movies, like I think what's I think. In a way, and that you, you've, you've revealed a few times that these people, despite not being intellectually aligned with you, have watched your movies, have engaged with your work. And I think I would say they, they clearly understood 
from work like yours and Naomi Klein and others over the last years, like this wasn't going well, right? The, 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 the hollowing out of America for the purposes of buying a fourth home is, you know, it, it was going well for them economically, but it was a gathering PR crisis over the last 20, 30 years. And the movies were coming out and the books were coming out and it was painting a pretty unkind picture if you think of where this conversation was 10 years ago. And I think part of where I come into this conversation is 10 years ago, I don't think there would have been the second segment on 60 Minutes, right? I think 10 years Sorry, ago, it would have just that. been like, here's the financial crisis and here's this bank and like, what? what's the story, man? Like, what, what? how do you feel about it? Why'd you pay that fine? 10 years later, there's now this second segment. And a lot of my work is on the use of the second segment which is, see, Jamie Dimon's doing all this nice stuff. The use of the segment to protect your right to keep doing the thing that they detailed in the first segment, but didn't really push you on. And another part of my project is to also say that you have to understand the social networks that keep all of this running. You have to understand that those folks at 60 Minutes, some of them, or just that kind of more general class of very ultra-elite journalists, are hanging out with people like Jamie Dimon or the people who work for Jamie Dimon at the Aspen Ideas Festival or at TED or at Davos or at you know various other confabs like that. Their kids are interning at each other's places, right? The banker's kids are interning with the journalists because they're trying to rebel against their banker parents and the journalist kids are you know, trying to intern with the bankers because they don't want to be poor like their parents were in the early part of their childhood or whatever. And it's this club. And I tried to write about from my own view. I, I, there were moments when I was inside that club and inside that citadel and got to see how this happens. And the truth is people are not sitting in that club in Aspen or whatever thinking about how do we screw people. They're watching your movies and thinking, that is awful. That's terrible. Right. And they're, A, failing to make a connection between how the institutions and systems they're part of are the reason for what happened in your movies. Right. And B, they are proposing then the kinds of remedies that worsen the disease by, by deepening the power of the Aspen Davos class over public life when that, in fact, is the root of so many of these evils. Can I tell you that what you're saying, um, you're not just assuming this. You're t this actually happens. People yes. need to know, you know, you and I have been given these peaks behind the curtain. So we know who's, yes. who's dining with who. And, um, or is it whom? I don't know. Again, if I'd gone to college, I know. If it, <laughs> the right one. But I, um, so I made a movie uh, called Sicko about the healthcare system. And I was later told that a meeting was held in Philadelphia. They sent the VP in charge of, um, um, public relations or consumer markets or whatever to this meeting, each of the, each of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and I think some of the healthcare insurance companies were at this meeting. How are we going to deal with Michael Moore? How are we going to stop him? How are we going to discredit him? It wasn't the first time that this had happened. I'd, I'd been through this with Carl Rove with Fahrenheit nine 11 and um, you know, the, the plan that, that uh, he and the people there in the white house had to put together to make sure that movie wouldn't affect the election that November. And, and Wendell Potter, who was a vice president of Cigna, basically later he quit. He couldn't take it anymore. He, his job actually for the group, for their round table 
was to fly to Michigan and go to the small town that I lived in um, to, um, I was having a little premiere for the town. Um, and I don't think there's 6,000 people in this town. And he brought his son and came because nobody had seen Sicko yet. So it's like an early screening. And he came there to watch it, brought a ticket. I didn't know who he was. You know, it's just in there, one of the people. And we had an after party afterwards in the restaurant across the street. And he came over to that, paid a little extra. And he later told me, he said, the drive back with his son, who's 12, 13 years old, after watching that movie. And the movie is not about people without health insurance. It's about people with health insurance mm-hmm. and all that great private health insurance we have. How they're set up to screw you and to when you do get sick to pay as little as possible for when you are sick, even though you have health insurance. His son, all the way back in the car, how could you do this? Why would you do this? You know, just challenging his day. And he said, I became so ashamed that I was part of what I you just showed in your film. Mm-hmm. I couldn't take it anymore. He went, he, he, I don't know how many weeks or months later, he quit. He quit and is now running one of the Medicare for All. I know this because this is a remarkable thing that you just told the story. I didn't know who he was until a week ago. He literally just reached out to me a week ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and said that he'd read my book and, and that he recognizes these moves, right? Because people like him were trained to make these moves. Right. Right. Um, can I ask you about something that I, yeah, yeah. I know it's, I know it's your podcast. But I have yeah. a question. No, 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 no. We're, something that's been yeah. concerning. So I think back to your warning in 2016, which was so prescient about the ways in which Trump was successfully selling an awful thing in a way that was resonant with people and that, that spoke to people. Um, when I think about both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and when I kind of just air my own ideas on these topics that, I get a lot of pushback from people who are sympathetic Democrats, who I think, who, who essentially say like, yes, Anand, you're right in theory, but you're just gonna, you're just gonna get Trump reelected. Like, you know, the, it, it's the sensible, moderate, slightly racist Joe Biden who is our best shot. And like, this is not the moment to both try to beat Trump and do huge things. This is the moment to choose between trying to do huge things and beating Trump. Now, I do not buy this one bit. And I personally feel like if you want to beat Trump, you have to sell people who have been shafted, some of the people he spoke to and others, sell them something that is equally and oppositely exciting, which is a bigger swinging vision. But part of me does feel pause about this question of the twin goals of beating Trump and massively transforming America at the same time. And I just wonder how you how you think about it. I uh, believe that uh, getting rid of Donald Trump if that's our only thing that we're up to, um, it will, the long game of that is that we're going to end up even worse off. We have to do two things at once. That's just the answer here. We have to get rid of Trump and we have to, we have to get rid or fix or do something about the rotten system that gave us Trump. That made him possible. Exactly. He did not fall out of the sky. Yes. I call um, him a, I call him a, bo- a pussing boil on a diseased body politic. <laughs> right. That's, that's it. And, and yes, remove the boil. Yeah. Yes. But you're not, you're not well now that you've removed the boil, but there's just going to be another boil. And next time the boil won't be as stupid as he is. They might be able to read. They, they will read. The next Trump will read and, and will, will be a lot smarter about it in the way that we've watched 
uh, Zuckerberg and Bloomberg and others yes. try to be smart about how to get away with what they're getting away Imagine with. President Tucker Carlson. I, mean, I don't like the guy, but that's a smart, well-read guy. Yes. It, it's Same platform, but literate. One of the things that might be saving us from the total collapse in these four years with Trump is that two things in my mind, his lack of knowledge and his lack of ability to have anybody stay loyal to him. He can't keep a good cadre of loyal lieutenants who will do anything for him. I don't mean the lo- the, lo- the loyalty he's getting in Congress during the impeachment and all that, because they, they want to get reelected and they think that he's their path. I'm talking about all fascist regime regimes in history have been able to have a, a large contingent of loyal people. That's how they were able to keep going. This uh, Trump doesn't have what the Hitlers and the Mussolinis or the, uh, the Pinochets or the, you know, you can think of anybody that has stayed in power with their authoritarian regime. You can't do it alone. You, you need quite a number of people that yeah. are so consumed with their love and loyalty for you. Um, again, I'm not talking about the politicians in Congress. That's a fake, that's a fake loyalty. Believe me, I think a lot of them would dump them as quick as whatever if they could, if they could, if they thought that they could. But I'm talking about what does he have in the White House? His daughter, maybe her husband, Stephen Miller, one or two others. That's not much. Yeah, I, you know, if you've talked to people who work in the White House or work in the West Wing or work uh, in the um, press corps, it's like a ghost town in there many days because, first of all, they haven't filled many offices in the executive branch. You know, and those who are filled are acting so and so. He's the acting. He's the, there's so this is this is I think in part saving us, but um, it's not enough. If you were to say to me right now, look in the crystal ball. And if we all get behind Biden, we're going to get rid of Trump and just do that. I would say to you, stop. First of all, stop looking in the crystal ball because it lies. You have no idea where we're going to be with Joe Biden in a month or two or five. But understand that the only way that Democrats are going to get out the base, the excited base, to excite the base, to get them to vote on November 3rd next year is because Whoever is running is talking about these issues that you and I have been talking about. Yes. And policies that are going to fix their lives in some better fashion. Yes. If, if, if the, if you listen to this right now, if, if on November 3rd next year, you wake up on election day, if you're not feeling like you felt, if you're old enough to have voted for Obama the first time in 08, everybody remembers that. Nobody that I know woke up that day and said, Oh God, I got to go vote for Obama. It was bodily. It, it was, was like a bodily, bodily feeling. It was a bodily feeling, and it was it was it was after eight years of uh, George W. Bush, and man, people couldn't wait to get to the polls, and we are going to stand there for as long as we need to stand. We're going to vote in Michigan. It didn't matter how cold it was, and I think that that's it's wrong-headed thinking. And if you're if you're one of these people going, yeah, but Mike, we got we just got to play it safe this time. I like Bernie Sanders. This kind of fearful liberal Democrat has been the undoing of us in the past. Yeah. And I want to just encourage people to, let me just, I, I always start by saying this. I believe the top four. And I believe, I actually do believe the polls in a head-to-head, if we didn't have an electoral college, the top four would be Trump uh, today. So maybe not worry so much about that. Trust that the yes, and and hope that the DNC has a plan now and has studied the electoral map. Like there's actually some thinking that's gone into this. Yeah, um, and then everybody, especially in the primaries, vote for the person that 
most lights your flame. Yeah, don't don't not do that. Don't play uh, Stratego here or something. Correct. You know, just you've got to. This is not the time to bring out your college game theory. If you took game theory in exactly, college, exactly, exactly. If 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 uh, you know, if you love Cory Booker, God damn it, vote for him. Yeah. In the primary, I, that really resonates with me, and I think part of what I'm concerned about, and I have been, you know, offering this, uh, you know, fr- free consulting um, to to any progressive who will listen and you know, who am I for them to listen to? But, but here's what I think. I also think the way in which the Bernie and Warren campaigns, but also progressives at lower levels in electoral politics have been pitching their ideas has limited the potential support and excitement for them. And here I'm talking about really language and framing, not the substance. I think the substance is, is solid and would really change a lot of people's lives. But I think the substance, and you tell me if I'm wrong about Michigan, but you know, I grew up in Ohio. I went to college in Michigan. I think the way the Bernie and Elizabeth Warren programs read in a lot of those places is scary, you know, over-transformative, like vaguely European. And what I have been arguing is that I think both of them and others who want to achieve this America need to employ two languages that they don't use enough that do work in those places, which is A, a language of patriotism and B, a language of personal transformation, both of which are deeply American languages. So on patriotism, I kind of want to hear the word Medicare for all, the phrase Medicare for all. I kind of want to hear that less. That's a policy phrase. That's a wonk phrase. That's a think tank phrase. Fine. I want to hear about freedom from illness as a vital American freedom. I want to hear about, like, I was saying the other day, and I was sort of as a joke, but also seriously, like, I think the Battle of Normandy should be invoked every time someone talks about healthcare. And I think someone should find a story of some dude who ran eight times back and forth from the waterline to the cliffs to drag people he didn't know to safety. People he would never see again. And we should understand that as a metaphor for the kind of health system that soldiers deserve to come home to and everybody else deserves to have. I think we should undersell that as like, this is who we are, right? We take care of each other. We have taken care of each other. This is who we are. This is patriotism. And we should flip on the first point. We should flip this dynamic where ruthless capitalism that leaves people on the street is American somehow and is the policy of like hot dogs and apple pie and actually having the back of your fellow Americans, even though you don't know their name is somehow vaguely European. So that's number one. I think I want to hear way more patriotism. It's it's patriotic to do that. Yes. Yeah. And I want to hear, and I think what's funny on the left is because of the war thing and because of imperialism, like there's this shyness around patriotism. And I think we on the left need to actually get over that a little bit. On, on the right issues, right? I don't think we should go be fighting stupid wars because of patriotism. But I think there's a language, the language of justice isn't the only language to sell some of this stuff. So that's kind of point number one. Point number two on is, is, is the, you know, almost the opposite. Another very powerful American language, vernacular, is the language of personal transformation. Follow this diet, you'll change your life. Drink this 
shake, your marriage will be saved, right? Take this pill, your love life will be enhanced, right? We love that. You go to the grocery store, what did nine out of 10 magazines right at the end, the ones that they're trying to hope you buy, even though you didn't want to buy it, you know, the budget for it. What are they trying to sell you? You can change, your life can change. Now, this whole American rhetoric of personal transformation is personal. It's normally like you personally do this one thing, and your life will be better. You per- And it's all the responsibility is all on the person. I'm sure they went to people in Flint and said, you know, yeah, you lost your job, this and that. But if you, you know, and I'm sure you can't eat healthy options now. But if you do this, you can change your life. What I want some of these progressives to learn to do is to co-opt this language of personal transformation, but for grand public policy. And to say... Not what would you do, but who would you be? Who would you be? What kind of self would you have if you didn't have student debt? What kind of marriage would you have if healthcare anxiety was not a part of your marriage? Right? What kind of relationship with your children would you have if you could work one job instead of three? And actually invite people, because a lot of this stuff in the progressive movement sounds a lot like the way I sound, frankly, a lot of time, which is like corruption is bad, this is bad, this is bad. I think we have to do better, myself included, of showing people what life will be like if this succeeds. What will your life be like? I think what no one says, what I don't hear Elizabeth Warren saying enough, Bernie Sanders saying enough, is like life will be so much more fun in America if we win. Right. Like let's not... Let's not, let's not bury the lead here. Yes, right. yes, yes, yes. Transitions, phase, yes, sure, all of it. Right. You know what's really fun? To like not think about healthcare for the rest of your life and where it's going to come from. That is fun. It's a better, more fun life. Call your friends with that half an hour. You don't have to stare at a medical bill, right? To have the money to take a vacation. Correct. To have the time off. To have any of the things that we should have as human beings. Money, as we know, is a leading stressor that causes divorces, right? Right. How many think people go to therapy? People try, you know, as an Indian person, I can say, you know, people try Tantra. People try all, all kinds of stuff to spice up your marriage. You know, you know what will really spice up your marriage? Not having student debt or to pay for health care. Right. Right? And I think part of when I, when I think about how do, you not have, how do you not have the repeat of 2016 in places like Michigan... I want to see progressives going to places like that and unapologetically pushing for the policies we've been hearing, but talking about it in a language of patriotism and talking about it in a language of personal transformation and helping people see that this is the American thing, what we're pushing, and this is the thing that will make your life thrilling, fun, full of love, whole. And to not lose this argument to some of the most ruthless, greedy, mercenary people on earth. Wow. I think if we did what you just said, actually, I think you and I, we should, we should make some short videos. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that if, if you just think differently about this election, um, it could mean better sex. That, I mean, how about just the chance to have sex instead of being just so wiped out? Because you are working that third job, because you you didn't even get to see the kids tonight before going to bed because you were you had to stay over late and you didn't have a choice. 
Yes. All the things that just make life so hard that I, uh, this is such a brilliant thing that you're saying. And those who are listening, um, play it back if you need to <laughs> share it, uh, with people, uh, tell people this, that, that, because I don't know what happened, uh, to the liberal side of the fence, the left. Um, we, we used to be the people that were, we were the party people. We were the people enjoying life, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All the stuff that we, that, that what we now have and what we are giving our children is, um, a pretty sad state of affairs. And, and you're right. I think if we just talk, if we continue to talk about just how sad and wrong it all is, first of all, it shows that we're not even in touch with the people we're talking to because they already know it's wrong and they already know their life sucks. And, and so what if we were to give them a window into it not sucking? How exciting that would be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, wow. I really, um, I think that you are such a force for good. This book, uh, Winners Take All, um, is just, it's, I encourage people. My sister just told me that she gave it, uh, this, this, uh, fall, uh, to her husband for his birthday. Um, and I said, wow, how, how'd you, how'd you know about it? Well, I see my morning Joe. <laughs> <laughs> with you <laughs> yeah yeah but, but you but 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 you go on these you go on these shows and you don't sound like a pundit we don't get to hear this you understand we really don't get to hear this i and, appreciate that uh well i and i think a lot of people listening to this appreciate it and i hope you come back and we can continue this Anytime. conversation there's so many other things i'd love to talk to you about uh um i want to tell you just one quick story if this is helpful at all these anecdotes or these stories of what is in this book and how true it is in terms of how they have successfully bought off the working class for so many years with this so-called generosity. And I've been thinking about this since I was 16. I could never, um, you know, quite put my finger on it. I couldn't articulate it, but I knew something was wrong Mm -hmm. in Flint, Michigan. There are, or were, um, at least a half a dozen, General Motors uh, factories. And um, General Motors was founded there in 1908. Within three years, the people in the town thought this is the most dangerous thing that's ever happened, that this company Mm. has formed here in Flint, and they are controlling the town. And so the socialists in Flint um, uh, ran an individual for mayor in the next election, and he won. This freaked out General Motors. So in the next election, Charles Stuart Mott, you might have heard the name because he's known, I think, his foundation funds a lot of good NPR stuff and all that, ran. And they they put out, uh, they got the daily paper was on the, the GM side to put out all this stuff on the socialist mayor and scandalous, you know, rumors about him and whatever. And, and they put a lot of money into electing, electing one of the founders of General Motors as the mayor of the town because they, wow. they knew if they didn't put a stop to this right now, all hell was going to break loose. They literally was, needed to own the town. They they and and they did. It was a company town, and they you bought your house from General Motors. You financed it through GMAC. Your car was from General. You built the car, then you they charged you for to buy it, and then the whole thing was circled around to more money in in their pockets. He remained mayor. He was elected, I think, three different times. Remained mayor for quite some time, and he and others. That's why he set up this foundation very early on, the Charles Stewart Mount Foundation. He said, uh, if we 
if we keep them down, if we make life so miserable for them, eventually they will rise up. That's what history shows. So we have to start doing things to make things better. So they made the public schools. He funded so much of the public, way beyond his tax dollars, to make them some of the best public schools in, in the country. In fact, people used to come to Flint to study the public school system. But this is where I first started thinking about it because my dad and all the all the factory worker dads, you work for a shift. That means you work from 6 a.m. to 2 or 2.30 p.m. That's it. You're out. And General Motors and the various powers that be decided to build golf courses, public golf courses, across the street or next to or nearby each of the factories. So I and all my friends so we're teenagers. We're out there. On the, our dads would bring us out after work and teach us how to play golf. And they all want, every factory worker wanted to be a, golf, wanted to be a golfer. Now, this is the sport of the, for the rich. But they were so genius about this that mm. in this one little case, let's give them a piece of what we have. Let's make them all golfers. Wow. And, and only charge a, a quarter, 50 cents, to, to play golf. And then they, in turn brought their sons, me being one of them, onto the golf course wow. to learn golf and to be golfers. And eventually there weren't as many strikes. Eventually things, you know, people forgot about, well, the idea of socialism was, you know. You start to think of yourself as a future yes. golf playing executive. Well, and you buy what is the American dream that anyone can be the head of General Motors. If you apply yourself, you can invent something. You can create something. You can have the good life. And and just to give you a little taste of the good life, here's a set of golf clubs wow. and a golf course. And you just have to walk across the street. You walk out of the factory after this backbreaking work all day. But but and they're all nine holes, by the way. I don't think there's I don't think there was one eighteen because they got to get home. You know, they got to dinner. You know, back then you dinner at five six o'clock. So. But they all played a round of golf. And then they, when their sons were old enough, they taught us to play golf. And it's a city of friggin' golfers. Um, wow. In a city that is working class, that is that was back then half and half black and white, and now majority That's black. That's an amazing example of, I mean, you have philanthropically funded golf that is entrenching the power of the people stealing the future from those people. Think of the genius of that. It's and it's genius. such a little thing. Other less smart rich people would, well, let's let's write a check to the local YMCA, you know, or you know, whatever. But this was like, no, let's literally build five golf courses. They'll be owned by the city of Flint. It won't cost hardly anything to play. And, and these workers will be able to walk around for a couple of hours thinking, I'm rich too. I'm playing the rich man's game. And by the way, that's also a few hours where they weren't talking after work and organizing Going right. to political meetings, going to union meetings. Well, on that level too, think about this. Golf is one of the sports that is not a team sport. It's an individualistic sport. Right. You're, you're, That's what I mean. You're not You're not having to They're not the, communing. Not communing and not talking how are we gonna how are we gonna win this game? And it's just about you, me, myself, and I. Wow. I thought about this as I read this in your you know, this sort of the concept of this in your book. Uh, there's so many examples, and this is just my own personal example. It's a very powerful one. And I've, again, thought about it since I was a teenager, but it took it took a decade or two before I figured out what the scam was here mm-hmm. and how beautifully it worked to the point where many of these auto workers would end up voting for Republicans and, and uh, 
having conservative values. Uh, you know, in other words, mimicking in the way that golf did the values of the wealthy class. And, um, you know, you started out by talking about how, you know, that boot is on the neck of all these people and that, that you are, you are going to be blunt about this, that the boot has to be removed from the neck. How are we going to do that? It can't just be elections, right? I think elections are the consequence of doing this, not the activity in itself. I think the, the way to do it is there, there are going to need to be mass popular movements that are powerful enough to counteract the role of money in elections, that are going to be powerful enough to put pressure on various institutions, to put pressure on government in between elections. Um, and I think particularly when you look at young people today in America, there is a real deficit of joining. And, you know, I've been reading Gia Tolentino's really excellent book, Trick Mirror, and she sort of talks about clicking as a substitute for joining in American life and the rise of clicking and the death of joining. And the point she makes, which is a very dark and powerful observation, is that when we go online to these platforms, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, two things happen. The actual thing that's happening is we are actually donating our time, which is our most valuable resource, for free to what are essentially advertising companies, monopolies in many cases, that literally use the revenue generated by our attention that we've donated to further polarize us, right? So we're donating time to an institution that's like making our society worse and shorter attention span, whatever. But what we feel we are doing when we go on those platforms is we feel we are being civic, mm. that these platforms have generated a false civic sense. And I, having read that in her book, I will say I completely resonate with that. When I spend longer than I should on Twitter in a day, I feel like I voted. Mm-hmm. Right. right? No. I feel like I talked down the bad guys and I amped up the good guys and I I spread certain ideas. No, you haven't done that. You haven't done anything. You've been stuck on your juice box. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And I think one of the things that we're really going to need in this country is to remember that clicking is not the same thing as joining. And we need a new... We need a, a kind of new era of joining. And it's not going to look like the old era of joining. I mean, I think it's going to be unions, but it's not going to be the unions whose demise you've chronicled. I think it's going to be some new thing, right? Uh, the unions you've explored in your work are never going to help Uber drivers. But there's going to be more and more workers who look like that right. than the people you know who make cars in Flint. And so what's the future of unions and collective bargaining? That has a future that has not been invented yet, but it's an exciting problem to think about, you know, or if you think about political joining, I'll give you an example of something that maddens me. Sometimes by choice, sometimes just because people add you to mailing lists, I'm on a bunch of different Democratic Party email lists, the national ones, some local ones, Brooklyn ones. And so, you know, you know, the ones where it's like, hey, this is President Obama, chip in five bucks, you know, whatever, to local stuff, whatever. I will tell you, much to my shock, in the two plus years, almost three years since Donald Trump became president, I've gotten countless emails from those Democratic Party accounts saying some version of chip in two bucks, watch this live stream of this thing, and then chip in five bucks, whatever. I'm not sure that in one of those emails since January 2017, I've gotten the following. 
President Trump today demeaned the following countries. That probably has a lot of people feeling down. Join us, since you're in this zip code, join us in Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn this afternoon for a drum circle and sing-along where we're going to celebrate some of the songs of those countries and show solidarity with each other. I'm not sure I have been invited to any specific place at any specific time ever by any of those Democratic Party emails since January 2017. I've been asked for quick online transactions. I'm not sure I've been invited to a, you know, a bar to talk with people. I'm not sure I've been invited to a picnic to reflect on our own immigration stories. And I see it now in the 2020 campaign, the rallies, you know, great rallies, great crowds. But are people being connected to each other, actually being fused together? Are people actually being turned into a movement? The people in the civil rights movement a generation ago, they actually knew each other IRL. They were actually friends, many of them. That's why they bailed each other out of jail and were willing to die for each other in certain... They were actually... They knew each other. And I think there's been this real problem in, with my generation, even the younger generation, where we've been, and maybe it's like those golf courses, we've been sold a vision of joining that isn't joining at all. And we need to see through the golf course, so to speak, and really invent a, a new generation of joining and joining technologies and joining forms and joining institutions and to actually be part of things and no longer just be a kind of mass clicking public. One of these days, come to Flint with me. I would love to. <laughs> Where'd you go to Ann Arbor to school? Yeah. I don't know if you ever made it 60 miles north. I think, yeah, I did a couple of times. Yeah. But um, I just had this idea that if, we, if you and I just did a, a short film uh, walking these golf courses. It's a great and, idea. And use it to explain the larger idea. in your What's the name of the course? Do you remember? Oh, I know that I can recite all of them. Uh, there's Mott Golf Course, of course. Of course. Of course. Uh, there's Pierce uh, Golf Course. Uh, there's the uh, Flint City Golf Course. There's Swartz Creek Golf Course. And I'm doing it as I'm remembering these, I'm lining it up with the factory. Is that one's mm. by the Buick factory? That's by the Chevy factory. That's by the AC spark plug factory. That's out, that's out there by the Turnstead factory. Um, uh, and it's, it, it is a me now, um, because Flint has been through such hard times and because, because of the poisoning of the water, um, you, you know, watering the golf course is what you have to do kills the golf course. So, so, um, the city has had to abandon, um, the majority of these at this point. Uh, I mean, are they still golf courses or they're not? Even- I think there's one now that's still functioning, um, as a golf course. It's still owned by the city. So here's the, here's the idea. You and I should play a round of nine. I mean, it sounds like you are an actual golf player. I am not. I've played like three times. Yeah. So it'll yeah. be, there'll be a com- comedy in the movie intrinsically with right. you actually <laughs> being able to play and me not being able to play. Right. Um, so that'll be a nice part of the movie. Okay. And, we'll, and we'll just do a full round of nine and we'll just talk about these issues Yes, yes. while playing this very lopsided game of golf. Yes. I love this idea. Yeah. And, and we Let's won't, make it happen. we won't bet. I won't take any of your money. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, but at the end, I think we're really going to need a, a couple of drinks because the, 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 the story is fun and can be told in this entertaining way, but ultimately you see how so many of people's dads, the way you hear young people talk about how they just can't stand going back to their parents or their grandparents because the Fox News is on, you know, 18 hours a day. Um, 
But they didn't just get that. They just didn't happen one day. There wasn't just something, you know, uh, no pun intended, in the water. This was well thought out by very smart people who I'm sure thought they were doing a lot of good. Some of your favorite NPR shows have been brought to you by the Charles yes. Stewart Mott Foundation. So, I mean, people, you know, what's so deeply sad and ironic about that is, you know, presumably they went out and bought golf shirts that made them look a little bit like a CEO and bought the accoutrement of playing golf. And they maybe imagined that they were golfing their way to the top. But I think when you understand the system, they were golfing their way to the bottom. That's right. That's right. And, and actually, there was a little golf uh, uh, apparel section at the local jc penny store where you could because you, you, you could never afford of course what the rich were wearing but you could afford that but jc penny discovered this market for at least the store in flint did you know wow. because because literally especially the men they everybody if you worked in the factory there's a pretty damn good chance you golfed and um and that was true for white and black uh general motors uh assembly line workers look this this is the movie the public needs Okay, um, boy, that was the easiest movie we've yeah. I've ever. All written. we got to do is shoot it. This is right. like we just yeah. have to film we've, it. We've just greenlit it. So, yeah, yeah. Once the snow melts. Right. Exactly. Thank you so much. Thank for, you very much for doing this. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah.